on the third day that we spend time with him, he would say, hey, why don't you help me paint? Like, what are you doing sitting on your ass? And, you know, it's like I didn't paint. So I was like, no, like, what if I mess it up? And he's like, no, if you mess it up, I'll fix it. And welcome to a very special episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. This week is a double release, with one version of my interview in Spanish and the other in English. My co-host this week is the lovely and talented Maya Verdugo. Oh, hi, Maya. Hi, Miranda. I'm Maya, and I'm a longtime friend and one of the many super fans of Miranda and all the hard work that she does with Pine Copper Lime and the global printmaking universe. I'm super excited to be a part of her work this week and looking forward to your guys' feedback and contributions to our future collaborations. For my interview with Marco in Spanish, please see our second episode released this week. Thanks, Maya. I know everyone will be looking forward to listening to that. Our guest this week is Marco Sanchez. Marco is a Mexican-born printmaker, currently getting his MFA at Edinburgh University, but grew up in the border town of El Paso, Texas. His work ranges from his relationship with his mentors and peers, to his cultural background and Mexican folklore, and is most recently exploring the notion of immigrant identity, and the role it plays in society as a result of the current political climate in the United States. For more information about Marco, as always, there's links in the show notes. I'm going to keep the housekeeping this week pretty short so we can dive right into this special episode. But lest we forget, there's a great online print gallery at pinecopperlime.com with prints from Southeast Asia and Australia. And our Patreon page has levels starting at just a dollar a month. And last but certainly not least, if you like this episode, maybe share it with a friend or fellow printmaker. All right, without further ado, here's Marco. Hi, Maya. Hi, Marco. How's it going? Hi. Hello. Going well? Thank you both for joining me for this experimental version of Pine Copper Lime. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Just the way I like it, experimenting. So... I'm doing something a little different, as any of my, my listeners may have guessed today. I have two people on the line. One is in Edinburgh, Pennsylvania, and the other is in Seattle, Washington. And I am, of course, sitting in Sydney, Australia. What we're doing, though, is we're going to do a double release of this episode, once in Spanish and once in English. My guest this week is... Marco Sanchez, who we're going to get to know, and my co-host this week is Maya Verdugo. And so I will be conducting the interview in English with questions that Maya and I have both contributed. And then for the Spanish version, Maya will be conducting it in Spanish with Marco. So Marco gets to talk about himself for two hours tonight, which is... (laughs) I hope you don't get bored, guys. No, no, no. You've got stories to tell. I know, I know. Uh, So, Marco, I met you through kind of funny circumstances at SGCI because we had a mutual friend who you hadn't met before in person, but you'd helped uh, with one of the fundraisers. So 
and we just met on the uh, one of the famously unreliable SGCI buses. No shade to SGCI, we love what you do, but goddamn your buses, people. And uh, and we hit it off, and we've been chatting, and I got interested in your practice and your backstory, so I'm excited to share that with people. But would you like to introduce yourself a little bit, where you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, originally I'm from, I'm born in Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua, um, Mexico, Mexico. And, you know, migrated, I suppose, to El Paso, which it's a funny word to say migrate when you're from the border because it's like you're always in this realm that's like you're in one and the other. And it's just, there's just kind of a duality that you're from both places, I guess. Now I'm in finishing my second year. And going to my thesis year in Edinburgh, Pennsylvania, where I am, you know, doing my MFA in printmaking. I did a just a double major, dual concentration as for my BFA in painting and printmaking. But again, we're in Edinburgh, Pennsylvania, a little far from home. But I think it definitely helped develop my practice even further. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that sometimes going to those out-of-the-way places where you feel sort of isolated can be hard, but it can also make you really focus on what's going on internally. Because all of a sudden, these distractions that you have fall away a little bit, and then it's just like, oh, you're like, oh, shit, it's just me and my work now. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And when I was back home in El Paso, people always said, like, oh, El Paso is such a small town. And this was out-of-towners, whether they were from, I don't know, Chicago or St. Louis or wherever, even from smaller towns. And I don't know, El Paso is close to 700,000 people. And then Edinburgh is about 7,000. So mm. I consider this, you know, quite a big change. This is a small town. It's definitely rural town, USA. Yeah, that sounds like a, a big change from a, a town of 700,000 to 7,000 and from the south to the, the north. Can you tell me a little bit, though, about what it was like sort of growing up in El Paso and, and being on the border. You touched on it a little bit, but it seems like it's such a culturally specific place. You know, something that's sort of interesting is that my co-host this week, Maya, she's also from a border town. She grew up in Nogales, Arizona. And so we've got two border town kids on the pod today. So And we're both up north now, right? One's the East Coast, one's West Coast. To go back to your question is, uh, I don't know, living, I guess, on the border is always... You know, I hadn't really left the border till I was about, I want to say, 23 when I started traveling mm. abroad. I really wasn't doing much prior to, I guess, enrolling in college. I was a non-traditional because I started university at 27, but we can come back to this in a bit. I don't know. It was, it was always different because the politics around the border, I think there's always a lot of history that isn't told. There's a lot of stuff that not even people within just that region are aware. And, you know, there's a big multicultural, I guess, presence, primarily Hispanic, it's primarily Mexican, but we do have a base in El Paso, which is called Fort Bliss. So there's a lot of German, there's a pretty big uh, Asian community in one part of El Paso. And I don't know, like, I always enjoyed that. I always enjoyed, you know, having friends from, like, all walks of life, you know, from different parts of not just the country, but different parts of the world. And, and come, moving up to a place like Edinburgh, Pennsylvania, which, you know, I've always been a minority being Mexican in the U.S. My father was born here, my mom naturalized, and then all my siblings were born here. I just, we happened to be living in Mexico, or they happened to be living in Mexico when I was born, so... There's a saying in Spanish that's like, ni de aquí, ni de allá. It's like, you're not from here, you're not from there. It's like, it's weird. Like, I don't know. I don't know if Maya can attest to that. Definitely. But, but yeah, moving from a place where I've always been a minority, 
but not the minority because the Hispanic population or Latino population was always about 70% and white was the next being, I don't know, I think like 15 something percent or so. And then the rest, uh, you know, Asian or African-American or whatever fall in between. But coming up here, I think white makes up like 92% of the population. Mm-hmm. And I think Latino was about like 0.5%. So I am like finally the minority or a, I've always been a minority, but now I am the minority. And that was whole kind of can of worms too. Was that like sort of a, I mean, I'm sure it must have been a bit of, of culture shock. Yeah, Absolutely. I came to visit before agreeing to come here, like when I was applying to grad schools, I knew a couple of things. I knew I didn't want to stay in Texas. I knew I didn't want to stay in the well, in the Southwest and I didn't want to go to California or New York because of the cost of living. And when I was looking at professors and places, you know, at different schools, I really loved my professor's work. His name is Bill Matthew. And Doug Eberthard wasn't in my radar, but he's a phenomenal screen printer as well. So I came to visit in March and it was definitely strange i landed in pittsburgh doug picked me up and we drove almost two hours up edinburgh is about two hours from pittsburgh so he picked me up from the airport we drove up and yeah it was definitely 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 small and cold the food was it was absolutely the thing that worried me the most (laughs) and it did not i was gonna say did not disappoint but i guess i guess it did not disappoint fully i cook quite a bit i love to cook so i make sure i eat well yeah, yeah, for sure. I bet that must help a little bit with, with homesickness to be able to at least eat somehow how you want to eat when you're far from home. Oh, yeah, it, it does. Two weeks ago, I was making food for my roommate, myself, and a couple other friends, and I was roasting chiles, like chile de arbol, and a couple other red, mm. like dried chiles, like guajillo and ancho, and mm. and they, they were all choking and dying and coughing and they're like are you macing us are you trying to mace us i was like relax they're like the smoke collapse is gonna go off i was like let them go off it's too spicy for them <laughs> yeah i'm sure maya is having is having flashbacks to sunday mornings in our apartment like making food and i'm just like these, Scandi- these scandinavian taste buds cannot handle this <laughs> it's not built for this <laughs> So growing up in El Paso, what role did art play in, in your childhood? Uh, see, that's funny because, well, you and I have had a, com- a brief conversation about printmaking and artwork and how I came to be in the field. And it always was in my, I guess more so when I lived in Mexico and Juarez, because my grandfather, uh, Guillermo Cordero, was a painter and a printmaker. And I used to draw a lot with him when I was a toddler and then like, but he moved to like Southern Mexico. He moved to Michoacan, I think when I was like six years old. So I wouldn't get to see him too often, but we always had a lot of his paintings around at home and he just passed away this September and his preferred mediums were always watercolor and ink and tempera. He still mixes yolk and his pigment. So that was always something that was present at home. Uh, and even in El Paso and you know he would send work up and my mom was kind of like his manager and would try and get shows set up for him both in Juarez and in El Paso and I think he set up in like Santa Fe New Mexico as well at one point but it wasn't I don't know it's something that I did not practice at all up again up until like when I was 27 but I don't know I guess I dismissed it I didn't really partake of the drawing or painting or any form of art making when I did it, it's more when I felt a little bit like alone, you know, and just to pass the time. And 
I don't know, always found a bit of kind of like companionship with that pen and paper or whatever the mediums I was using. Yeah. And I just found friendship with friends, you know, like little kids, like kids seek other kids and they seek friendship and have a good time. And I did sports all my life. And so I stopped doing artwork for, if I say a decade, it's probably more than that. I didn't do any sort of artwork for 12, 13, 14, maybe 15 years. Mm hmm. Yeah, it almost sounds like it was it was so present that it was almost invisible in an interesting way. That's a good way to put it, yeah. So what were you sort of doing between, sounds like getting interested in sports, and then between then and, and 27, what was your life like? That's funny. Uh, a whole lot of nothing, <laughs> I guess, a whole lot of finding yourself, you know, as a lot of kids do. Mm -hmm. uh, getting in trouble a bit, but I also started backpacking. I started traveling and and what interested me the most was anthropology. I love learning about cultures. And granted, I've only traveled in Latin America, uh, Central America, South America, like Venezuela, Colombia, Cuba, again, Central America from Panama to El Salvador, and then plenty of Mexico. Mm -hmm. Now, Nowadays, I, it's mostly Mexico that I travel, um, and primarily because of uh, printmaking. But yeah. I, yeah, I wasn't doing much more than that. I was working, I was bartending. I think I bartended for about 12 years of my life and it was because of the traveling, because of backpacking with my one of my best friends that we started in Venezuela. And again, it was because of sports. We flew to Caracas to go watch the Copa America, which is kind of like the World Cup, but just of the Americas. And we went to, of course, watch the Mexican national team and we didn't fly back at all. We took buses, we took private, like kind, I guess kind of like Ubers before Uber were a thing <laughs> that people would set up outside of bus stations. They're like, oh, well, we have a car, we have a car, we'll take you for like a fraction of the cost and we can stop whenever you want, blah, blah, blah. So yeah. took that. We also took a boat from Colombia, from Cartagena to Colón, Panama, that took like six days out at open sea. And, and I guess at this point I was doing a bit of photography too, you know, it's like, I don't know how many of us, like when we were kind of getting into artwork, it's like photography is the easiest medium or the first that kind of comes to mind to be like sort of deep. And I still do a bit of photography and it's mostly... To use most photos as reference but I don't take like artistic photos and I never seek that like you know finding models to do the whole modeling photography either like it's something that I've never enjoyed but I guess that's kind of how I started and then my best friend and I Raul we ended up visiting my grandfather in Tira Buen and we visited him we stayed with him and you know like saw him working in his studio and it's something that I had not seen and hell like 18 years and you know he kind of showed us around and showed us like the historical spots like a uh, national parks and different like haciendas and studios and i guess not a print shop because he wasn't a printmaker until maybe the last eight years of his life on the third day that we spent time with him he was like hey why don't you help me paint like what are you doing sitting on your ass and you know it's like i didn't paint so i was like no like what if i mess it up and he's like no, if you mess it up i'll fix it he's like here blend this color try and get this blue for the background and that's all you got to paint so i did that and you know it went fine and i and, you know and he told me he's like well are you drawing anymore and i was like no i don't draw anymore you know i don't draw since i was a kid and then he tells me he's like well you used to, you used to draw pretty well i was like dude i was seven like what do you know <laughs> but yeah, and that's kind of how what sparked my interest in artwork. I was like, all right, well, anthropology and painting, and you know, and I was thinking about cave paintings, and I was thinking about just artwork from whether it's textiles or drawings or whatever from different cultures. So I was like, well, I'll pursue that, and that's kind of how I got started. So, how much time passed between that meeting with your grandfather and pursuing formal training? 
I think about three years. And then I did start drawing more and making stencils. But formal training, I did, yeah, it took about three more years. Um, and again, and I started originally as an anthropology and painter. It wasn't until my, I was in my seventh class, in my second to last class to finish my painting degree. When I took my first printmaking class, I'd seen screen printing and I'd heard terms from my grandfather like, oh, etchings and lithography. And, you know, I was like, okay, I just saw them as artwork. I didn't know what the heck they were. Yeah, and it was in my first printmaking class that, you know, when I first touched a copper plate and I was like, oh, my God, this is beautiful. <laughs> take over me, please. I love that that moment that I think so many people have had where they're floating around in the world a little bit and then there's just something about fruit making when they arrive they're like oh I'm home. It sparked more of an interest too than painting and and I guess drawing because I feel like they're more immediate you know and there are plenty of ways to work a painting or a drawing but printmaking was just completely foreign and alien to me that I just wanted to like dive head in and not get out of there until I was like done and ready. Which um, sounds like you're far from it. Hopefully. <laughs> I mean, there's times that are, you know, that print does test my patience, but <laughs> it, it is what I know. About. It's like, crap, well, okay, how do I fix this? But. So I've really just kind of through the internet and through various conversations that I've had, it seems like the state of printmaking in Mexico specifically incredible work is coming out of there. It seems to be much more present, it seems like, in people's minds than maybe in the U.S. and maybe less of the hierarchy that, of course, we talk about here where it's like, oh, painting, sculpture, and then printmaking, you know. But I don't I don't know if any of that's true because, again, I've never gone to Mexico specifically to seek out printmakers or do printmaking things. I really want to. But I guess this is just sort of a long-winded question of trying to ask you if you could speak to kind of the state of printmaking in Mexico and what's, what's exciting happening that you're interested in. What do you hope to go back and see where do you travel when you travel for it there just a a little bit of an overview because it seems like really exciting things are happening sure gladly i work from my time off here i go back home and i work either at the museum uh this summer i'm actually doing a residency at the el paso museum of art from june uh there's also a group of printmakers in el paso which they're called um, one of the professors from utep uh his name is manuel guerra or manny guerra and he has his own print shop called Hortoad Press. So it's him, Francisco Delgado, and Raul Monares. And Francisco Delgado used to be my painting professor at UTEP, uh, but he's doing a lot more print now. So us three, along with Carl Whitaker, who's kind of like a collector, he likes to call himself like an art agitator, and we all kind of call him that as well. Like we've been, or Manny's been putting together a print exchange, and this one was the third. I was barely participated on the first one last year, and that one we had 52 or 57 artists. Don't quote me on the number. I don't remember. I think it was 57. And the number from last year, from 57 to this year, went up to like 153. So it went up almost 100 artists. And artists from Oaxaca, which is primarily where we work in, with Taller Grafica Libre. We work with Mexico City. Uh, or in Mexico City with Arturo Negrete at his 
uh, print shop, which he's solely a screen printer, and his shop's called Taller 75 Grados. And I mean, the work he does, he's a master printer. He doesn't make any work himself, but I'm going to call him the best screen printer I've ever met. And then in Veracruz, there's La Ceiba, but I've yet to go to La Ceiba. I've gone to Oaxaca a couple of times in Mexico City with him. And this summer, in July, I'm going to go to Querétaro to display a portfolio that I was fortunate enough to have been selected to lead during SGC this year in Dallas, which is titled Saints, Superheroes, and the Demonized, and that we'll be showing at a shop in Querétaro. Again, that one's called um, La Madriguera Gráfica. So yeah, that's a little bit of that. The work is phenomenal too. And yeah, if Mexico wasn't on your radar for printmaking, it's it's all over. I think it's also, you mentioned the hierarchy mm -hmm. of like painting and, and the importance of. And I think a reason why printmaking is so big down there also is, uh, my professor often calls it like a democratic process. Right. And I actually had never really thought about it in that sense. But, you know, I've always understood the sense of, okay, you make multiples and, you know, you can sell more and for less than what a painting would be. And not to say that our end goal is to sell and sell and sell, but it's to have our work shared and be able to have one piece in multiple places at once, you know. So it's not just for a specific few or for an elite few if you're, I guess, a painter or a sculptor. And I think, I guess, specifically what I'm thinking of is I, there was an SGCI once where I, I went to a talk and there was a printer who worked in Mexico. And, you know, he told this anecdote to kind of start is that, you know, he's like, I travel a lot for my work. And when I come to America, you know, people ask me, you know, at the hotel or, you know, who you're doing your Uber share with, oh, what are you here for? And, and you know, you mm -hmm. say I'm for printmaking and they're like, oh, so like you do like photocopiers, you know, like nobody, nobody gets it. Mm -hmm. But when mm -hmm. I fly home to Mexico City and I get in the cab and the, the cab driver's making conversation with me, He's just always like, oh, yeah, yeah, Grafica, yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's understood there, you know, maybe just sort of culturally, like, on, like, more broadly. And so it just takes up, a, like, a, a more present space in when people think about art. Would you say that that's your experience as well? Uh, yeah, I completely agree because I think, again, going back to being a democratic process and, you know, we think about printmaking and some of the origins, at least in Mexico, they were propagandistic and mm -hmm. one of the biggest movement shops was Taller de Grafica Popular which was led by Leopoldo Mendes who he's the creator of it and he was like my favorite artist what they wanted to do was try and find like a voice for Mexico like because it was when he started this I think he started in the 1930s I don't know if it was 1937 to be honest but I might be correct and he started this as a way to find a Mexican identity because hmm. this was shortly after the Mexican Revolution where there was still a lot of kind of like Spanish influence and then there was a lot of Mexican nationals that were moving to the U.S. and then people in the U.S. were being sent back to Mexico and it was a way to try and find a, an identity and I think it was more of a grassroots movement down there too and I feel that when I go down there, you know, everybody here knows like Takish and mm -hmm. Phenomenal Spot. Right? But the presses are expensive. They are pricey. You know, not everybody can afford them. And in Oaxaca, a lot of the presses that the there's like 12 or 13 print shops in Oaxaca, like in one city, 12 or 13 within like a five mile radius. That's insane. And I was like, how the hell like is this happening here when I think the population is like half the size of El Paso, and then El Paso has 
only one outside of like UTEP and maybe which is Manny Guerra's, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and down there, the, all, a bunch of those presses, if not all of them, the majority of them are. And I might be wrong because I know I know that at least a few places who I've spoken to to like the print shop owners and and places of where you go and do residencies and some of these print shops are like galleries and they have a press and it's like, hey, well, where did you guys get your press? And there's a man that used to be an engineer, and now he's just making presses. A really nice size press that, you know, you can print like 30 by 40. A Matrix 30 by 40 fits on there, like, will cost you like 2,500 bucks. It's like, if you try to get something here in the U.S., even if it's like refurbished or used, you're going to be dropping like 8,000 bucks or so, you know? And I think that's why, like, one of the big reasons is just so much easier. And same thing, screen printing is not all that expensive and... I don't think Mexico is like a big on hierarchy. I mean, of course, there's like great artists that are, you know, painters and sculptors. But yeah, it's like you said, like Grafica, any, anywhere you go, whether it's Mexico City or, or anywhere. And it's like, yeah, Grafica, Grafica, and they're all aware of it. it. It's such an interesting point, And it makes so much sense that accessibility to the actual physical objects that you need to create this art if it is more accessible, that it is going to be more prevalent. So it's not just either you're independently wealthy and you can have your own studio, or you're lucky enough to live in a city with a great community shop, which, you know, that's only a handful of cities, or you're in an academic institution. You know, that's kind of the only three options when, as you say, you're looking at something that if you're lucky, it will be $8,000 to do this work. So... That is that is really really neat and um, would be great if if we had if more people in the world had had access to that kind of thing. Jumping in, I wanted to ask you if you thought that printmaking was a less accessible art medium in the U.S. You know, I think Miranda did touch up on that a little bit. That you know, if you're not in an academic institution or if you're not in a big city that has you know print studios, it can be harder to get in. And I mean, even here, like, and, and my undergrad and, and here, you know, professors always reiterate the fact that it's like, hey, like, you guys should take advantage of, of the facilities because if you don't pursue, I guess, further education, or if you don't think of, you know, working at a print shop or buying your own press, like, you're not going to have many opportunities to be working with this type of equipment. So I think it is a little harder here. So I'd love to transition and talk a bit more about your work specifically now. It looks at immigrant identities and sort of their role in society within the current political climate that's that's happening in the United States with border politics. Maybe before we jump into that, you know, I know I have a lot of listeners who are in UK and Australia and maybe places that because it's it's not as close to home, maybe only have a sort of a tertiary understanding. So I thought maybe you or even Maya as well, being both people growing up in border towns, wanted to speak to that current state. Yeah, well, gladly, you know, how do I start? I guess coming up here, when I was looking at grad schools, I was actually looking at Tennessee, at Knoxville, and I had people that would come in and like professionals, people that I've known for years, and they're like, hey, we're just careful, you know, there's still a lot of prejudice. And all this was in 2016 while the elections were going on. And so I was like, crap, like, do I really want to go somewhere like that? And so that had a, a big sway when I was applying in grad schools. And now I'm in rural Pennsylvania, very red. But, <laughs> oh my God. Anyway, <laughs> uh, it's well, when I started, I guess, making work or when, you know, Trump 
won and everything and remarks that he did against you know mexicans being drug dealers and bad hombres and mexico sending their worst and you know that really ticked me off and then since i was in oaxaca when it started with the child separations mm -hmm. and that was happening in el paso so that was right at home and my mother was a social worker who was you know working at a shelter for a while and her job was along with others to kind of do the psychological evaluations of the kids and you know making sure that they were okay and they had psychologists they had attorneys to try and do every all the legal matters to get them to where they were going but this was before the child separations or at least the way that we see them now so then that was right at home and it they built this place in tornillo which is maybe 45 miles outside of El Paso. And I, again, being an immigrant myself, but always being from the border and them creating that to hold detention centers for children alone, for scared children, ranging from, you know, like a baby, an infant to adulthood. So like 17, like right before they turned 18. And when they turned 18, they were taking them out of there and throwing them in prison. So a lot of my work kind of started happening because of that. And so many other things, like my brother going to the, my, my, one of my younger brothers, he's a Marine, he's in the reserves. And I noticed how differently people started to treat him, but not just him, also like the family and how telling us how we should all be very proud. And people who had never met him, you know, then, you know, that I had mentioned, oh, he's a Marine. And they're like, oh, tell him thank you for his service. Not trying to attack the military or anything because, you know, I'm a supporter of the troops. And But it's like, you know, telling us, oh, you should be really proud. And it's like, well, I, I should be proud to be an American more so now. Like we, you know, it's as if it was granted this whole thing, and this cloak, this magical cloak that you're more patriotic because like your brother or somebody like in your family is like in the military. And it was strange. It was really weird that they, you know, held them in higher reverence because of that. And but us, too. You know, and it's like, is this what it takes for you to be patriotic? No, you know, and you can care so much about the people around you and your country without being in the service. And not just that, like before leaving to the service, maybe two months before that, my brother came out, you know, as bisexual. And then now you have that whole fiasco with trans people not being permitted to fight in the military and. So I don't know. Um, I was really mad at all that and my brother not aligning, you know, his beliefs directly to commander in chief. So, yeah, like a lot of that. And I felt like he was kind of being marginalized also and not just him, but, you know, the kids. I don't know. It, it's that's kind of how it started. And I was in Oaxaca when when all that was happening and just one day, you know, sitting around and uh, the guys at the print shop were like, hey, do you want to do an etching, too? And I was like, yeah, I had this little drawing of Trump, which again, my work had never been political up until then. It always been more about folklore and tradition and my culture and heritage and what I was proud of. But then I felt like I had to be reactionary, you know, and I think that's a big thing about Mexican printmaking, going back to like Leopoldo Mendes and Diego Rivera, Jose Clemente Orozco, David Alfaro Siqueiros, they were all post-revolutionary artists, and but they were also reactionary. And I think that's kind of what drives my work, too, looking at artists like that, looking at artists from back home, like the ones I mentioned earlier, like Francisco Delgado, Manny Guerra. And, and it's a way to kind of counteract that ignorance and resist the xenophobia and the bigotry and the racism that was kind of being spewed out by specific uh, members of the Republican Party. But yeah, I made this little print of Trump and just under like a bed with like a pillow that said ice and it had like a little monster repellent spray bottle. And that was when I was in Oaxaca was this last summer was the beginning of my work going 
political. I think that for many artists, and it sounds like for you, you have very personal connections to it through your own identity and your family's identity to the horrendous state of politics right now in the U.S. that have kind of echoed sort of similar things is that they were doing one thing, their practice had this certain aspect to it, that they were maybe, you know, doing some of the work that celebrates their culture, they were doing landscapes or they were doing just anything. And then mm -hmm. when things started to take such a scary turn with U.S. politics, with the election of Trump and that kind of floodgates that it seemed to open for this simmering racism and disrespect and xenophobia that was under the surface that kind of all of a sudden seemed to be like, okay, well, our commander in chief is saying these things. Thank God I can finally say them now too. And everything that comes with that, that the artists who've been working, it's almost like, well, how can I not make work about this now? It's so on my mind. It's so eating away at me that it has to come out somehow. And I think that a lot of artists have made that switch and started to make, you know, really great work about it, yourself included, which is wonderful and important. It reminds me a little bit, I actually did an interview with Aaron Coleman. And, you know, one of the things, considering how disturbing and how present this is, what role does art making really have to play? We're all angry, we're all scared, we're all sad. Shouldn't we just all put down our burins and go be political activists or, or social workers? And he said, I think in these times, everyone has to do what they're good at. And everyone has that kind of role. And if you are an artist, you need to be a part of documenting because the art is how future generations are going to remember this time and learn from it. And that all of it is part of it, sort of an ecosystem of resistance with everyone doing their role, which I really loved. And it certainly reminded me of what you were saying about like having your work kind of take this turn. It's like you were stepping into that. It's like, okay, I have to do this now. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's like, how can you not, you know, whether, you know, you're a musician or a visual artist. So in kind of to get into like the, the real specifics of your work, what I've been seeing you do lately is looks like large scale woodcuts. Really intriguing imagery. Like you've got one um, where are you beheaded? in the most recent yeah. one? You've yeah, got yeah, that's, that's my head. Exactly. That one. Uh, well, this is a triptych that I'm working on. And it's also, you know, having conversations in class and stuff also that what can you touch as an artist? You know, what social issues can you touch? It's going back. Let me backtrack for a second. The show that I put together for SGC was again titled Saint Superheroes and the Demonized. And it's meant to elevate all these people that have been marginalized and demonized. After making these kind of like angry prints, I was like, well, I don't want to be angry. And, you know, because it kind of it wears on you, too. I was like, I can't be making mm -hmm. these. So I started making other little things to kind of not be so mad all the time. And the same superheroes and the demonized. It's meant to, again, to uplift people and to put them in a pedestal where I think they belong, whether you're, you know, an immigrant, anybody who's been attacked, who's been you know, targeted by this current administration. So whether you're a female, an immigrant, person of color, member of the LGBTQI community. And I posed this question in seminar and I said, like, well, can, what can you touch? And what, what is ours to touch? And what can't you touch? And, you know, like I've been trying to figure out what to do. And one of the things I wanted to, to do, like, you know, was a kind of a patron saint for, I guess, queer people. And I was like, well, would that be okay with me doing mm. something like that? And uh, somebody in class like nodded their head at me disapprovingly like no that's not yours and I was like well you know 
everybody that I use in my in my work, it's people that I have conversations with and people who I want to make sure that I represent them and the way they want to be shown. You know, so it is about having a conversation too. And the large scale, the the one where I'm beheaded, that one was also sort of reactionary, but to violence against women and mistreatment of and sexual abuse or whatever else have you. Um, because also Ciudad Juarez, where I was born, has been for many years, I believe since like 1993, the place where most femicides have occurred yeah. since, yeah. at least statistically. So, you know, I this is what this trip is supposed to be. And, you know, being a male, like I'm putting myself on there because it's like, I'm not, I'm not free of guilt. Like, you know, like I've not killed or attacked or hit a woman, but you know, I'm not proud to say, but it's like, we've all made or done or said something that would constitute abuse, whether it's in a relationship and it was kind of like a toxic relationship. And I can definitely think of one or maybe two that it wasn't either good for both of us and just, you know, you kind of stay. And it's just kind of taking a bit of ownership to that sort of culpability, but also just trying to elevate these women and make something out of it. And and every time that I make a piece, or I, at least I try, every time that I try and make a piece like this, if I sell one or two or three, like I, t- I try and like donate some of those proceeds to like an organization. Mm-hmm. Um, so for this, there's a battered women's shelter that, you know, for every one of these that I sell, I'm going to try and donate like 30%. So as opposed to having it be the 30% that a gallery would take, I would donate this money, these funds to the women's uh, women's shelter. And I'm actually like working on one right now as I'm speaking to you, just kind of <laughs> doing some more car. I've, I've printed two, but I don't want to post anything more than that until I'm done with the triptych. I just wanted to comment um, kind of on behalf of the Mexican or even Mexican-American female community. Thank you for everything you do and just your attitude towards feminism as a Hispanic male. I feel like being from the Latin American community and having the creative power to create the way that you do, it's really significant to hear your attitude towards feminism in a not forced or needy way. And I just wanted to say thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. You know, I try. We we try. And it's, it's again, it's like just trying to react and see what's important to me and, and why I try to do what I do. You know, like people can paint like a really nice portrait. And it's like, you know, I can sit here and do portraits because I've done a couple and I don't know. They're, they're no more than that. But I don't know. I try and tack- I'm trying to tackle issues that are either important or dear to me. And I also saw a lot of just abuse at home with when growing up in the Latin American community. Unfortunately, there's a lot of that. And I remember just seeing a lot of it at home. And when I was growing up, fortunately, um, for the better, both both of my parents, you know, just became better people. Part, part of the reason, I guess, of this triptych is, you know, a response to a lot of just self-personal issues that I've had and things that have, I guess, been a bit of remorseful or not, I guess both remorseful and resentful, but also ashamed of and just trying to tackle certain things. And it's like, well, I think it's inspiring to hear that you take the initiative to tackle that or to feel and express that in the ways that you do. Um, And just, you know, coming from 
a mutual border town as well. And that community and the neither here nor there concept, that's very true mm -hmm. amongst, I think, many border children and people in general. It's really refreshing and inspiring to hear that out of that you've you know, chosen to bring that with you no matter where you are and, and, and just what you create. That's it's it's inspirational to hear that. I appreciate you saying that as well. I was thinking it was in line with what Maya was saying is that it, it seems like what you're sort of tackling and wrestling with and is something that a lot of men that I know are are dealing with, which is sort of in these you know, these last years when the sort of the Me Too movement and call out culture and all of that is happening. I think Every single man that I'm close to, all of them are looking to their past and saying, oh my gosh, was, I, was that ever me? And mm -hmm. really having a very hard emotions about it because probably isn't a surprise to know that pretty much every man I'm close with enough to have those conversations with are liberal, they're artists, they would say they're feminists. You know, that they sort of like, well, I'm one of the good ones, you know, and, and I mean that in, in a way that they've earned thinking that, you know, because they have been making an effort. But now is this is, is the prevalence and especially the casualness of these male female dynamics, particularly in social, sexual and romantic situations are coming out. That is some hard shit to wade through. And I have so much respect and love for the men who are doing it because it's not easy, but it is so important. So shout out to you boys who are doing the work, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We, we see you and we appreciate you. We're all kind Thank of... Thank you. Yeah. We're all kind of <laughs> treading forward into this, this unknown world and figuring out, you know, what the other side's going to look like as, as this super mm. turbulent time is, is upon us, so... Maybe going back a bit specifically to your work, is there anything else particularly related to border politics or, or Mexican-American cultural identity that's, that you've done in the past or that's on the horizon that you wanted to speak to? I guess not really tackling much of identity per se anymore, at least not mm. of personal identity. You know, moving up here at first, it was more about like grapple. First of all, I have to tell everybody, like, who am I and where I'm from and, you know, what my identity is, inform everybody about that. And that's just, it can be tiresome as well. Right. Like, going out to a restaurant or going out to the bar and having people, like, tell you, like, oh, my God, what are you? Because you look like nobody up here. Or, you know, it's like I wear, like, horongos or ponchos, I guess, and getting to the bar, you know, and I'm wearing one of those and they're colorful and People are asking me, like, oh, my gosh, is that for religious purposes? I'm like, dude, you know it's, like, 13 <laughs> degrees out, right? Like, it's cold. I want to stay warm. <laughs> yeah. I brought these up for a reason. But, no, right now, no. It's I think I'm, you know, trucking through this, which is more uh, this series, which is, again, to just elevate everybody. And it's I've been also trying to break off from just working on paper. I've been trying to work a bit more multidisciplinary fashion where I have this idea for an installation one thing I've been trying to do is, in a sense, decolonize my work. So not thinking too much about European aesthetic. But I've also never considered myself a Chicano, a Chicano mm -hmm. artist, which I think there's good indicator when you look at a piece of work and it's a good indicator that it belongs, you know, to a Chicano or a Mexican-American artist. And no, I'm a, I've, I've always said, like, I'm a Mexican artist living in the U.S., living and working in the U.S. But I do, you know, align myself. I think we do go hand in hand with Chicano artists. I'm also not trying to look at like shrines too much or altarpieces 
because I am trying to kind of make some of those, but to house like either a superhero or like this cumbia playing like fear inducing xenophobe fear inducing you know cumbia players but i'm trying to it's like well how am i gonna display them outside of just paper and so i have all these tires that luckily one of my professor was gonna get rid of them and you know trying to house those prints or that work those images within these tires and just kind of going back and using my painting degree and, you know, paint a little bit on these tires and making other sort of installations for them. But that's me also trying not to look at traditional Catholic elements or European elements. But So I don't know if that answers your question or not. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I'm really interested in what you were saying about, as you said, like decolonizing your work and moving away from that Western European aesthetic which, you know, is, is interesting because I, I know that you've used a little bit of folklore before and I know that your grandfather had really beautiful folkloric characters and figures in his paintings as well. Is there any connection in there between that, that inspiration and, and what you're doing now? You know, I have ideas to make work. I guess there is a bit of folklore doing what, what I'm doing and that would be not directly tied to my grandfather. I have a couple of like ideas for a series or two to kind of make work again to pay tribute to him. But mm-hmm. I guess rasquachismo, I don't know if you've ever heard the term or rasquache. Mm-mm. So rasquachismo is sort of a, a movement that has that used to have rasquache comes from pre-colonial terms uh, from Nahuatl and rasquache had like negative connotations that it w- it meant to be like of lower class or just kind of ghetto and then it made a transition to you know, if you call something like rasquache or like this style has like rasquachismo, it means that it's you're kind of dismissing the necessity for like precious materials or like formal training or, hmm. you know, things can be crude and they don't have to be pristine and, you know, think about everything entirely too academically, you know. So it's like people would make work with what they had. Like, and I'm trying not to make it look like I'm trying hard because I'm really not trying hard. Yeah. But I built a couple art altar pieces before and that were a little different but now it's like using tires i remember living in mexico and juarez or you go elsewhere in poor neighborhoods and they use tires to you know make some sort of divider or to make i don't remember where it was in in latin america that i I don't know if it was colombia or venezuela or where that i saw a documentary and they were building kind of like a levee out of tires so to prevent just the water from coming up and it's like you know tires are something that's always present in it's something that were always like present in my mind when I was a kid, and like mm-hmm. we'd play with tires, or we'd prop up a tire that was like discarded in the back, you know, thrown like in a field, and we prop that up against the wall, and we'd use that to jump the wall. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm trying to kind of work in that way too, and I've been trying to do that for a while, but I always just find myself going back and editioning work, and I don't know. I want to. I've been trying to step away from that and just exploring different outlets and different ways to making work and and showing the work. I don't know. And I think that comes a bit with that sort of identity that, yeah, I don't. One thing I took from one of my professors was to not treat everything like a precious object. I think that's that's significant, particularly when you're talking about that idea of decolonization, because that formal training hierarchy, that idea that the very best art is the art that is, you know, the most realistic. And you can really see that kind of very formal training and let's say figure drawing or something like that. Of course, that has mm-hmm. to do with, you know, access to institutions, access to teachers, access to money. 
that is opens the door to all those places and comes very much from a European model of thinking about what makes quote unquote good art. Um, so I love that idea of kind of like breaking down that kind of tightness and the rigidity and just returning to, to a looseness of creation where you don't feel like you're, you're beholden to these structures that you're born into that, but may not be a part of you. One of the, the, the most amazing classes that I took when I was doing my graduate work was graduate seminar on Aztec art. And, you know, we looked at the codices from Tenochtitlan and the sort of pre and post colonial images and how they changed so much, but the kind of imagery that comes before any kind of European influence, it's incredible and it's so affecting and beautiful and significant and it makes you realize how rarely in our lives we see visual culture that is not one way or another brought back to like the fucking renaissance, you know? But yeah, just, exactly. It's just like, it's like, wow, we are missing out on a whole world. We're missing out on a thousand worlds because everything that we do is just like Michelangelo was the best. I guess one thing too that I didn't touch upon is going thinking about, you know, like where you come from and what's important and and think I was just staring back at those tires and I have this plaster piece, this etching that I did of my father and and he's a contractor, so I wanted to make a piece to kind of tie it down to him and it's like well how do I you know make something that connects to my father which in turn kind of connects to me and because uh, I did construction for a bit with him as well and you know I made this piece on plaster and I sent it to I had a solo show like my first year that I was here I had a solo show back home and I was like well how else did I display it so I started adding like chicken wire and that was the reason that I built like my first altarpiece. And it's like, so, you know, again, what's important and, and what's part of your identity and, and, you know, kind of shifting that to him as well. And I think that's part of the whole like rasquachismo too, why I'm interested in like materials that aren't like precious and tying it together and seeing where the heck we end up stumble mm -hmm. upon myself all the freaking time. So <laughs> when Miranda's me, if I'd be like interested in doing this, I was like, yeah, heck yeah. We had a good conversation about, you know, my grandfather and, a couple other things, and I was like, hey. Um, and I just wanted to make a really quick comment on this rasquachismo concept you've been discussing. Um, it's very familiar in the small town community where I come from, and to go outside, quote-unquote, rasquacha was very typical of uh, kind of like a white trash concept where, you know, you exit the house and you're PJs and a messy bun and mm -hmm. it's just interesting to hear it used in an artistic setting where you know my families use it in reference to the way people dress but it really does apply to you know a lot more than just that and it's it's funny to hear someone else use it in a much more sophisticated <laughs> setting <laughs> that's so interesting yeah. yeah you know being from a border town and that's a place where at the moment, that imaginary line in the sand, so to speak, is a place of such tension and, and, and pain and politics, and it's inspiring a lot of art. But what do you think is kind of like the state of art in border towns? You know, how, are, how is it in people's lives who are like sort of being yes. most directly affected by it? Well, we have the Rio Grande, right? And then at the bottom, there's always different murals. And I remember crossing the walking over uh, over the bridge that connects El Paso and Ciudad Juarez. So walking over and just seeing all these murals and 
I remember is going back as like seeing Bush, like stuff anti-Bush during like uh, the Gulf War. So there, it is prevalent, and it it always goes to politics, and there's always comparisons between you know I guess Nazis again, like mm-hmm. a kind of rebirth of them. I don't know. At least in El Paso and Juarez, the politics are very present, and and it is all mostly. I don't want to say to kind of like attack or target, but it's trying to bring same thing light to just certain issues. When the whole family separation started happening, one of the professors from UTEP, uh, he's a sculpture professor, who his work is very based on that too, and just kind of demonizing the current administration. But uh, we put up a, a fundraiser exhibition to try and get funding for this place called the Annunciation House, which is a house that's supposed to, you know, it's a shelter. And we wanted, uh, the goal was set at a thousand bucks. And it was an online auction that it was open, I think, on from Monday to Friday. And Friday was the reception at uh, this small gallery that you could also go and bid in person. And our goal was, again, a grand. And we short, we sold just shy of seven grand. We mm. made up, I have seven grand for Annunciation House. So it's something that is very present right now. I don't know what is going on right now. I haven't been in touch with many of them as to, you know, if they've been doing any more fundraisers of that sort. I think the reason why I, like we met Miranda was because a piece that I donated to uh, your friend's gallery up in, in New York was to raise funds for that sort of thing also, right? Like a family separation. So I do kind of try and keep that on my radar, whether it's like on the border or not. You know, if there's some somewhere something that I can do, whether hardly any do I hardly ever do I have the opportunity to donate money out of my pocket. But if I don't, if I sell one or two or three pieces of that specific theme, then I will try and donate a, a bit of the proceeds to that. So, Marco, would you tell people where they can find you? What's the best way to follow you and, and see your work and buy your work and support you and all the good things? Sure. On my Instagram, I guess, is where you most of my uploading and my sharing and a lot of process videos and whatnot. But yeah, my Instagram handle is on paper and canvas. And then my website as well, which is marcoprintsanchez.com. And that's probably the two easiest ways to find little old me. Well, <laughs> I will put those in the show notes, of course. I can personally attest that Marco's stories on Instagram are always pretty much good for definitely being amusing and fun. Well, thank you guys again. And we'll just be in touch about when we can meet up and uh, do it again. Definitely. Great. Okay. Thanks, thank guys. You. We'll be in touch. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by Miranda Metcalf with editing help from Timothy Pauschak, music by Joshua Weber, and translation and creative contribution by me, Maya Verdugo. And so many extra special thanks this week to Maya for making it all possible with her language translations, creative contributions, and general good vibes. And of course, for Marco, for doing the interview twice. Did you like having this double episode? If so, hop on the Pine Copper Lime Instagram and let me know. We can do more in the future. See you in two weeks.